Please pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit, set our hearts ablaze with the message of love that you have for us today. Amen. Happy Pentecost! I have a pastor friend back in Austin who wears a hat that looks like flames of fire every Pentecost, but I didn't know how well something like that would go over here. (laughs) But it is a great day in the history of the church. Y'all have heard the readings this morning of what is known as the birth of the Christian church. When the Spirit comes and lights upon those upon those disciples, and many come to believe. Now, I know that we have given you a lot of reading material this morning in your weekly and on the front of your worship folder. So a summary of some of the information about Pentecost that is on there, if you didn't get to read it, is that Pentecost comes from the word to mean 50 days, as it is 50 days after our Easter celebration. But We borrowed that word from our Jewish brothers and sisters who were already celebrating Pentecost or Shavuot or the Festival of Weeks, which is seven weeks after Passover. This was a harvest type of festival, but came to be a time of celebrating when Moses received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So here it is in the context of the people receiving a covenant that we now have the birth of a new covenant people, a covenant that is made in the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for you and for me and for many. So now that we have this connection between covenant and a new covenant people being the birth of the church, what might we learn about what it means to really be church from this birthday story. Now, you have to read the story in context of Luke 24. So a reminder that when you have the book of Luke and the book of Acts, and you're reading in your New Testament, you just need to bookmark John and skip over it, because those are meant to be one text together. So in the end of Luke, in book 24, or yes, in chapter 24, Um, Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, tells his disciples, It is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So before Jesus ascends, he tells his disciples, I've been with you for about 40 days as risen, as resurrected Christ. I've been telling you what you should do, and here is this command too, to go out into all the nations, to be witnesses to what you have seen and heard. But wait, wait for the Holy Spirit. Stay in the city. Do not go before the Spirit comes to you. In my profession, I get to read many books that have to do with learning styles and how best to teach to different audiences or about pastoral care or counseling or even how to calm anxiety in organizations. 
And if you're anything like me, when you're reading something that has a practical output, I get really excited about two chapters in and want to go try everything out. But I know I'm not the only person who does this because so many of the books have kind of a warning statement that says, now don't go out and do this until you finish the whole book, or make sure you practice this in your own life before you try and teach people this. So in some ways, it's almost like Jesus is saying this disclaimer to the disciples too. You've had this head knowledge, you've had this experience with me, but wait, don't go out and teach this until you have the spirit within you, until you have this experience of God with you, sustaining you and pushing you forward so that you can do this work well. I wonder how often do we as a church or the church universal want to skip over that waiting part. All right, Jesus, we've read your stories, we've heard the parables, we've been to Sunday school, and we've looked at the text. We're ready to go. So let's have a vision or a meeting or a committee or make a plan, and let's go out there because we know how to minister to the people around us. But how often do we do the hard work of waiting and listening and saying, God, what are you calling us to do? What is maybe not an idea that is coming from my mind or my education or knowledge, but instead, can I wait on the Holy Spirit to guide me to say, this is how you minister with and among the people around you? But back to the passage at hand, it's interesting that you'll notice that the crowds who were there, who were bewildered and amazed, did you notice that they are not bewildered and amazed at what is said, but instead the fact that they can understand it in their own language? So to put this kind of in context, when you look at um, the text itself and also looking at the Greek, the emphasis is not on what is being spoken, but instead on the hearer's response. Some scholars will even say that there's not enough evidence to know if the story is saying that the speakers actually spoke in different languages, or if rather the hearers just heard what was being spoken in their own language. So rather than the polyglot reading that we heard today, which helps us imagine what it might be like, it may be better to understand it as this viral soundbite that has gone around this week of Yanni versus Laurel. <laughs> so I hear a few giggles. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, there is a website, vocabulary.com, and people can record how to pronounce different words on there. Well, someone had looked up, how do you pronounce Laurel? And the recording that they listened to definitely didn't sound like any of the letters that they were trying to sound out. So they sent it to a friend and said, what do you hear? And they said, oh, well, I hear Laurel. And the other person said, well, I hear Yanny. And so it got sent around and has divided households and families and started Twitter wars. So I don't know if there are some Team Laurels out there or some Team Yannies out there. <laughs> 
But you have to admit that you can't say the Holy Spirit doesn't have a sense of humor for this to be going around the week of Pentecost. <laughs> so, this <laughs> so this audio illusion gives us kind of an idea of what this might have been like, but reminds us that the focus is not on the speakers, but it's on those who were listening. And this experience that people witness, that made them amazed and made them want to know part more about this gospel message was one that was of unity. And I know that right now, many of you would agree and say that our country and our church and our community needs some unity. We need to learn how to really listen to one another. Even in the world, of seemingly benign disagreements over maybe what type of diet or nutrition plan you follow or parenting types or even what kind of car seat you have, there are people who are passionate and have convictions about a particular side. And we often react to words that are spoken, listening listening usually not with an open mind, but instead listening for the landmines of words that might reveal somebody's affiliation, their camp, or where they stand on an issue. Often, we go into defensive mode when we hear words like undocumented or illegal, equality or tradition, privilege or supremacy. And see, some of us are probably already getting a bit uncomfortable right now, just talking about those words. But we'd call these words charged, right? They have a different meaning for different hearers, depending on how they are viewing the issue. And it sets off that reaction within us. But this passage is offering a way for us to look at how the Spirit calls us as hearers to be transformed. Those listening don't ask the disciples to please, can you say this in a different way? Or can you change your tone of voice? Or can you not use that language? Instead, they understand in their own language what they are hearing. For us today, we need the spirit to affect the way that we listen to each other. And that's something we can learn from the early church. We want to be able to listen to the person in front of us, to be able to put ourselves in their shoes, to hear their experience and their perspective as valid, and to listen for the ways that there is unity between us, even if our perspectives are different. Where are those values of love and compassion? Where can we find them? Spirit, can you help us listen for those? The Spirit helps us to set aside our perceptions of the words. They let us be able to listen lovingly. It really takes the Spirit to calm our fears and our anxieties, to remove our preconceived ideas about how society should work, how a business should operate, or even how a biblical text should be interpreted. So God, I just say, send your spirit because this country and this place needs it for all of us. 
The desire to really listen to one another from a place of unity is just the beginning. It's the birth of this movement. We are still part of the early church that is continuing today and is seeking to be united in Christian love. But how do we continue to lead in this movement? How do we take the fire of the Holy Spirit on the birthday of the church and catch the flames and spread them to the world? Now, I know that many of you probably woke up early yesterday or watched it later, but saw the royal wedding. And I know a few of us even had some wedding cake at a Sunday school event for Lena this week. So several of y'all watch it? A few. Well, I hope that if you did, did you listen to the sermon? Yes. So the presiding bishop um, of the the Episcopal Church, um, Reverend Michael Curry, preached a sermon about transformative love and the power that the love found in the life, death, resurrection of Christ has to change the world. He cast a vision of it changing the world from a global perspective of ending poverty to just healing relationships and families. He was talking about this movement that we are all trying to be a part of. But what does it take for that movement to go beyond just words? Behavioral researcher Simon Sinek is the author of a book called Start with why. He is interested in movements, movements of all kinds, about why they continue to go strong and they gain momentum and change is made, but also why others fizzle out or fail or no progress is made. One of the keys that he has found in comparing movements, one of the keys to success, is that the movement defines what they are and where they are going rather than just what they are not. So I'll say that again. What they are and where they are going rather than just what rather than just what they are not. I know that not all of us are Baptist and I feel like I have a good um, rootedness in Baptist history because I chose to be Baptist, but this is a theme that has come up in the Baptist conventions. It's easier to say, well, we're not like those Baptists, rather than to say what we actually stand for. And so this passage and what Simon is teaching us is challenging us to say, how can we define ourselves by what we stand for? Can we, NBC, define ourselves by being, by seeking to be a loving and inclusive community rather than what we are not? In more recent history, if you think about a successful movement that Sinek may have studied, you may think of MLK and the civil rights movements in the 60s. Now that is a picture of a successful movement, but if you think about it, there were several civil rights movements before then. There were several other leaders, but why did this one take off? Why did it get results? Why? Did so many people invest their time and their energy and their lives in this? Sinek teaches that it's because MLK didn't just say what needed to change, but instead painted a picture of what people were working towards. 
Many of us remember the words of his famous speech, I have a dream, that one day on a playground in Alabama, a little black boy and a little black girl will one day be able to hold hands with little white boys and little white girls. He didn't talk just about the larger goal of racial reconciliation for all cultures and all people. Instead, he painted a picture that people could enter into, something that they could imagine for their own children, their own families, in their own community, the difference that it would make. The thing is, is that we rally around individuals instead of large numbers. We look at the big picture, things don't feel as real. I wish it wasn't this way, but it's how it is. Think about the Syrian refugee crisis. I know for me, I heard so many statistics about people who were fleeing their homes, about violence that was happening, that people who needed things, but it was all just big numbers. Until that picture came out of the little boy in Aleppo sitting in the back of an ambulance covered in dust and rubble and blood. And all of a sudden for me, all I could see was my nephew, Peyton, who's about that age and that size, and it became real. It went from a large number to something individual that tugged at my heartstrings. And so many of us are that way too. So these movements that last focus on individual experiences. When you think about MLK leading that rally that day and all those thousands of people showing up on the National Mall, and without social media or emails or texts or reminders that way, we realize they didn't show up because of a leader. They showed up for themselves because they believed in the cause. They believed in the hope of a change that would impact their lives. They believed in a hope of change that would impact the people around them. And they had that dream, and it caught a hold to their neighbors and their families for them to experience that dream, too. Now, Peter, describing this event, quotes Joel, talks about what this experience is and how it is motivating and moving this momentum forward. And he says... In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my slaves, both men and women. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." This verse has come through my mind again and again this year as our young people across the, across the country have spoken up about a dream for their future, as our older members even here at this church have shared their wisdom prophetically, and as women and men alike in our community have come forward to testify about the love and compassion that they know is God because of how you have rallied around them in dark times.
This is where movement happens. We need our young people to prophesy their visions of a world, of a community without violence or hatred, without fear. We need our older people to dream of what we can achieve and to share their dreams that they're drawing on their experiences of how their faith has strengthened them over the year with all of us. We need all people, regardless of race or gender or socioeconomic status, we need all people to come around the core identity that is the message of love. We need them to remind us with their voices that we are part of a movement that can set this world on fire. They say that this whole Easter season, if you're starting with Lent and today when it ends on Pentecost, starts with the ashes of Ash Wednesday and ends in this fire today. But this week, with the violence and the hatred and yet another school shooting, it feels a lot like ashes still. And I know that there are people here in our congregation that health concerns, job issues, relationships, it still feels like you're sitting in ashes right now. And so I wonder, church, what's it going to take for us to be the church together, to set each other on fire when it feels like it's just ashes, to continue this momentum so that it can build and that Christ's love can transform and change how this community exists and lives and knows each other? What's it going to take for us to be that fire? What's it going to take, church, to really be the church like this early church showed us? I know it's going to take the Spirit of God to come upon us. And so we pray, come, Holy Spirit, come. Amen.